Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Valentine's Day, everybody. Hey, Patty, will you be my Valentine? I will. Okay. Oh, yeah. Will you be mine? I will. Good. Very good. It's Got good. that done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got that box ticked off. No, it's Valentine's Day. Great day. You know, seven days after Patty's birthday. It's the whole Patty extravaganza That's here right. in our <laughs> household at this time of year. Well, you know, when I was little, um, my sister Joni, who's nine and a half years older than me, I have to say that just in case she's listening. I always say 10, and she always corrects me. So, nine and a half. Um, Joni is an interior decorator, and she's really into fashion and clothes and makeup, and she's wonderful at it. And from the time I was like five, four maybe, she did my birthday parties. Yes. And everything was always done for Valentine's Day. And she always did just the best job. And She did. I, of course, to me as a little kid, she was like really old. Yeah. But now I realize she was only like 13 or I've heard the stories. 14 doing these parties. Look who I have with me today. It's Rudy. Rudy is back. <laughs> little Rudy's here with us. He just got dropped off. A little bit ago because tomorrow his parents are taking like a Valentine's Day cruise for two weeks. So um, we're watching him for Robbie and Savannah and we're thrilled to have Rudy with us. He's our little bud. He's our He's little, little grand dog. With Pat, fortunately, with Patty in the room here, it should be okay. We shouldn't right. have any Rudy emergencies. And I'm not going anywhere. Here. So, yes. yeah. So that's good. He'll be here next week, too. Yeah, because yes. this is, yeah, he will. Will he really? And he might possibly sure? be here the <laughs> third one. <laughs> so Are you sure? I am. Okay. Because no, he's okay. He's a good guy. He's a good big, guy. We like Rudy. So um, anyway, I'm, I'm a little bit jealous of them. I wish I was going to. But little Rude, he is so tiny. He's so small. He's so sweet. And he's very timid. Very um, old. Never makes a sound unless I leave the room. So <laughs> Then he does. This weird, strange Rudy, sound. I'm going to put you down, buddy. <clears throat> Okay, so I guess we should probably get started. What do you think? I think so. I do want to ask a question. Okay. I know we might have some new people here today. Okay. And I know what you usually do when we start a new series, because this just started last week. You will go back over. We're going to review a little bit. Sure. Oh, sure. I'm a teacher, so you kind of review back and you try to pull right. things together. And if you missed last week and you would like to see it, it's, of course, it's up on audio and it's up on video. And the links to all of that is on the classes page at scottengel.org. Just simply Scott Engel. My name. And no spaces. Scottengel.org. I have my own little domain I, I, I put stuff on. You do. So there we go. But yeah, we're Alrighty. gonna do that. Alrighty, bud. You ready? I am. Okay, let us pray. Gracious Lord, what a beautiful Monday this is. Sun is out, temperatures are warming up. And we are grateful that we have the opportunity to come together, to study your word, to come to this big scroll of Isaiah and strive to hear Isaiah and his disciples and well and to, to understand what your message for us, a message that you, that you gave your people long ago. May we see, may we not only hear the message on the page you well, but may we be able to to connect it um, to Jesus and elsewhere in Scripture for across Scripture. We do hear a unified voice from you about the lives we are to lead. So with all of that, we pray this in the name of your um, Son, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Amen. All righty. I'm going to go on the other side. Okay. Rudy will be glad. Join Rudy. Yes. He will be happy that you did that. So, friends. Happy in his little bed. So, here's the thing about Isaiah. Context is important in all of the Bible. But context is, I think, especially important in a book like Isaiah because these messages that are almost seem random are just coming at us and you have to slow down and, and, and try to understand something of the context in which these were given and written. And I think all of that will be helpful to us. So um, let's just review for just a minute. I've got some slides, okay? So this map I used last week, this is a map of the divided kingdoms of Israel, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the kingdom of Judah in the south. They were divided after the death of um, King Solomon, and the northern tribes pulled themselves away. And the time frame is a little bit more than 700 years before Jesus' birth. And the great Assyrian Empire is to the north of Israel and is gathered there. And it does seem quite clear that they are going to fall on the northern kingdom of Israel and even on the southern kingdom of Judah. And that everything is going to be destroyed and so forth. And this, this sense of pending uh, doom, I guess, uh, is something to bear in mind here about how things are. Israel is actually prosperous at this time. The people are doing well, but they have this giant empire on their northern border who likes to gobble up other empires. And so, yeah, yeah, if you're, if you're perceptive, it would be a nervous time. And again, a little more than 700 years before Jesus is close enough. Now, the scroll of Isaiah is in three parts. Chapters 1 to 39 is the critique of the world and a people gone wrong. That's we're going to get a lot more of that today. So it's just that that's what's going on. Chapters 40 to 55 are about acknowledging that pain. Um, it is not and the suffering servant passages, for example, come from this middle section of Isaiah, and then the closing part which contains the new heavens and the new earth language, is all about seeing the world put right. And I brought out last week that one of the things to acknowledge when you come to the scroll of Isaiah is that we hear multiple voices. Um, these are John Golden Gay's names for them, but right off at the beginning, in the very first verse, um, we're told about Isaiah by somebody, right? So somebody, some disciple of his, is putting that down to begin the scroll. And then the writings and or sayings that Isaiah brings are on this scroll. So it ends up being a composite work. And we shouldn't see it as just Isaiah sitting down, putting pen to paper or something, or him speaking and somebody trying to take dictation from chapters 1 through 66. It's not that, that's just not what it is. 
Instead, it is a it was a primary means for God to speak to his people. It became such an important scroll. It was one, you know, a lot of synagogues um, uh, that the Jews had in the ancient times, they couldn't afford all of the scrolls that the Jews considered sacred. But they would want to have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the books of the Torah. And they would for sure, if they could, have a copy of Isaiah. And indeed, in Nazareth, <laughs> Nazareth, they do have a copy of Isaiah. Because in Luke 4, that's the scroll Jesus reads from to announce his ministry and say, the time is, the time is upon us, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and it's happening right near in your midst. So all of that comes from Isaiah. So um, last week, we were in chapter 1 and part of chapter 2, and in chapter 1, we, d we found that what we had was a lengthy indictment of God's people. Um, Isaiah is a prophet principally to the southern kingdom of Judah, though you can hear in it various echoes, I think, of, the, of what is happening in the northern kingdom. But he's principally a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah, um, and the and the city of Jerusalem. So let's just get a sense of where we were last week. Look at Isaiah 1 verse 17. There are a lot of verses in Isaiah that don't really jump off the page at us. But this one does. This one really, really sets things up well for us to understand what's going on. Chapter 1, verse 17. Learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. That is who God's people are to be. The powerful don't need so much help. Right? The rich don't need so much help. But the poor and the widows and the orphans and the oppressed, they do. And God's people are to seek justice in all things. We are to seek equity in all things. We are to learn to do what is right. Okay? So that gives you a sense of what's happening in the first chapter, which is largely um, this indictment that they don't do those things. For example, look at the end of verse 23. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case doesn't even come before them. Right? It's, 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 it's a people who have just decided to abandon God's ways and lead their lives and run their affairs by the ways of the world. And long before, how long before? Six, seven, eight hundred years before, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they had agreed to live their lives differently. God gave them his teachings, his law. And that included looking after the widows and the orphans and the fatherless and seeking justice in all things and making sure that, yes, 
just wanted to ask you, uh, Jim Hess just put a question. He said he and Diane are taking a class up at Collin County College uh -huh. on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. It was stated that there were over 20 different copies of Isaiah that have been found. Why would that be? Because the, why were there so many scrolls of Isaiah? Because it was so important. In fact, one of the stories around the scroll of Isaiah, which we'll go ahead and talk about now, is the fact that um, if you went back to, say, 1940, okay, all of the Old Testament texts of Isaiah that would be in Bibles would be, have been based upon a manuscript that dated back to maybe 1000 A.D., Right, the other earlier ones had just kind of been lost, but when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, among them was were not only incomplete copies of Isaiah, but a complete copy of Isaiah. Right, enabling the scholars to take this complete copy of Isaiah from the time of Jesus. That's when the Dead Sea Scrolls were written out by the community of Qumran by the Dead Sea. So you take this scroll of Isaiah that probably predates Jesus by a hundred years even, and you can compare it to the scroll of Isaiah a millennium later. And sure, there were small differences, but none that really matter. The copyists did such a remarkable job of passing down from... Um, Jesus' day, through the century after century after century, this text of Isaiah. And it's called, it's called the Masoretic text, okay? Because it was the Masoretes were the group of Jews who did all this copying work and everything. And all of it simply tells you that the, that the Jews' writings to them were sacred. That's where we Christians get that, actually and how important the scroll of Isaiah is. So when I say like a place like Nazareth might have the five scrolls of the Torah and Isaiah, and maybe not a lot else, ought to tell us a lot. The fact that this time, I mean, in Nazareth is nothing of a village, nothing of a village. And yet in their Torah, in their um, uh, scroll collection, they have a scroll of Isaiah. Who knows where it came from, how they came upon it. But just incredibly important. The rabbis understood it was important. It was probably the most important Hebrew writing in terms of its influence shaping Christian theology. Because, like we saw last week, chapter 1 is what? It's a statement of the problem. <laughs> The problem is the people don't live as God taught them to live. They don't live according to the covenant that they made with God at Mount Sinai. They just live as everybody else lives. And as a consequence, they are separated from God. They're like on... The two, the two sides of the Grand Canyon. God on one side, his people on the other. And so the in the looking past even the scroll of Isaiah, the solution to that problem is whom? The solution to that problem is Jesus. Jesus. Right? You see, it's Jesus 
in his faithfulness all the way to death, even death on a cross, that reconciles us with God, that bridges that, that canyon, as it were. So naturally, a scroll that is consumed with the problem and then has these visions of the solution of, of, of the world put right, and then in Isaiah 53, even has a vision of how this will happen, even though most people don't get it. We'll talk about that weeks from now when we get to Isaiah 53. That's why Isaiah ends up being so important to Christians, not just to Jews, but also to Christians. And so, yeah, good, good question, Jim. Glad you're taking that class. It's pretty fascinating stuff. It is. It is. Okay. So, you know, okay, so chapter one is the statement of the problem. Is it going to be the only statement of the problem? No, it's not. There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in these opening chapters in particular about the problem, the arrogance of Judah, the arrogance of Jerusalem. And uh, so that's why I want to go back to chapter 2 because in the first four verses, which we did read through last week, um, you get something else. What you get is this envisioning of a world put right. So you might say to me, well, Scott, okay, so wouldn't this make more sense if we did it nice and logically and here's how the scroll is set out. You have all these statements of the problems and stuff and at the end, just at the end, you get you get sort of this new world kind of stuff. Well, it might be more logical, but it's not how these prophets work. You get it. You get these different looks all kind of mixed up together. I, I heard a, a professor once say it's kind of like if you drive through the Rockies and it's a clear day, clear day, not not it's a clear day you can't really tell how far away which mountains are. You have to have some kind of frame of reference because the near ones just look just look like shorter version, uh, taller versions, but they might actually be shorter than the ones in the distance, right? You, you, you lose that, that, that depth perception because um, there's no frame of reference for them. And that's kind of how the prophets are. They can see into they see into what's coming, which most of the times doesn't take rocket a rocket scientist to figure out, because Israel is making a mess of things. I'll show you an example in a minute. Um, and and so and and so they look ahead, but they can't really see exactly how all these pieces fit together. So you just get these messages, these oracles, scholars call them. And they can be a little bit jumbled up and mixed up. And that's why you need help to do this. I need help to do this. Everybody needs help to do this. Scholars spend careers doing this. And it, because it is, it, it is challenging to strive to hear the school of Isaiah well, especially to get the larger, larger picture, I think. Um, so let me give you that example right now of what is happening during Isaiah's career. Okay, so just hold your plate. We're, we're going to come back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. But right now, go to the book of 2 Kings, 16th chapter, 10th verse. 2 Kings 16, 10. 
So um, King Ahaz is a king in the northern kingdom. Okay, but this story is still illustrative of the problems. Because it does seem to most people that what's going to happen is the northern kingdom is going to get swept away and the southern kingdom is not going to be far behind. Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 10, verse, chapter 16, verse 10. Okay. Second Kings 16, verse 10. Yeah. Hey, you want to know what? What? We have a whole bunch of people that um, are new with us today. Isn't that cool? Hey, welcome new people. This yes. is awesome. <laughs> Some that have been with us for, you know, a while and have maybe stepped out at the last class and now have come back or whatever. But it's really nice to see so many people out there. Today. Yeah, it is. It is. So spread the word. And I know for a lot of people, they can't meet at 3 o'clock on a Monday. I get that. This is not really the pandemic anymore. But it's available. Audio, video. It's all out there. Steve Drew sits down every Monday night. Steve Drew sits down every Monday night and does class. Because <laughs> I guess he gets off work. And so he sits down and he, he, got, he does the Monday class. And it's awesome. Awesome. Okay. So, my friends. King Ahaz is the king of the Northern Kingdom. Let's call it you know, I don't have the slide in front of me to tell me exactly what year it is. But anyway, it's a little more than 700 years before before Jesus. So, the exact year doesn't matter. Just look what, ha look what he does. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus, that's up in Syria, to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. Okay, the big northern kingdom up there. Now, he saw an altar in Damascus. And he sent Uriah the priest to make a drawing of it. With detailed plans for its construction, he really thought that pagan altar looked really, really good. <laughs> Verse 11, So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before the king returned home. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. Where, okay, he offered up his burnt offering and grain offerings, poured out his drink offerings, and splashed the blood of his fellow fellowship offerings against the altar. Oh my! As the bronze altar that stood before Yahweh, he brought it from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Oh my, oh my, oh my. So basically this king of God's people sends, goes up to Damascus, sees this magnificent pagan altar. I'm sure it looked beautiful. And brought it back and put it inside their own temple to Yahweh. Could it be worse? The answer is no. It couldn't be worse. That's the state of things when Isaiah is is working here. So, just... I guess if they would have brought the actual altar, that would have been worse than recopying it. <laughs> yeah, but this is bad enough. This is bad, yeah. This is bad. Okay, so Isaiah chapter 2. Let's go back there. And let's get these words kind of in our hearts before we, we get back to the arrogance of Judah or something. 
Chapter 2, verse 1. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days. When I talk about the day of the Lord, the last days, the end of days, the day when God does God's big thing, um, the day that will be marked by resurrection of the dead, okay? That's what we're talking about. In the last days, when things are put right, the mountain of Yahweh's temple will be established at the highest of the mountains. You see, in the ancient world, um, civilizations put their temples on mountaintops. Why? Well, because they all believe that if you go straight up, you would get to God, literally. Straight up that direction, you get to God. He's up there. His throne room is up there on the other side of the sky, So, which is kind of like a domed roof. So, you, so consequently, these temples end up being on high mountains. And if you don't have any, you build them. And you call them like pyramids or ziggurats, okay? Or Aztec temples or whatever. But the, the, the uh, um, Israelites did have a high mountain um, and they built the temple there on Mount Moriah. But this is a way of metaphorically saying it God's temple in the last days, of course, it's going to be the highest of all the mountains, the highest of all the temples. It will be exalted above the hills. All the nations will come streaming to it. There's that word all again. We got we to gotta look for that word. That's a really important word. It should have been a reminder to, to God's people, to the Jews, that their vocation as a family of Abraham was not just about themselves. It was about all nations, all peoples. So this is the population of the earth. That's what we're talking about. The inhabitants of the earth, all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob. See, it's as if to say to these Jews who generally are viewed as pretty weird because by this time they think there's only one God and of course everybody views that as a ridiculous notion. Everybody knows that there's lots of gods and, and, and it's sort of like, no, this day is going to come and everybody's going to come here and they're going to realize we were right all along. Let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the temple of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths, which is exactly what we are to do. You want to be, you want to be obedient to Jesus? You want to, you want to live as Jesus taught us to live? You want to follow the example of Jesus? All this stuff I hear about, it's pretty much that simple. Walk in God's path, not the world's path and learn what that path is. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law, right? This is the law of Moses, God's teachings. will go out from Zion, another mountain, hill, hillside in Jerusalem. The word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He, God, will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. And then come these remarkable words of peace. 
that have just they, they they've just rung out across the millennia this vision they will beat their swords into plowshares they will beat their spears into pruning hooks you see that's what hebrew poetry is by and large the first line states it the second line restates it sometimes the, the second line says the opposite as a way of bringing out meaning but usually it's like this. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, and to repeat, they nor will they train for war anymore. You're not going to find any troops amassed on people's borders or anything. You can pick any decade in human history, and you're going to find people ready to make war. Just imagine, if you would, for just a minute, just, just one minute, imagine if for the last 8,000 years, all the time, energy, and resources that humanity has poured into making war on each other was poured into caring for one another, curing diseases, taming this dynamic, challenging, natural world. Just imagine. impossible to imagine what kind of wonders were lost on the fields of Europe when a million young a whole generation of young Englishmen and young Frenchmen and young Germans were lost on the battlefield just dead what kind of cures of disease what kinds of marvelous inventions to to ease people's lives were lost because of bullets and bombs and shrapnels and the rest. So of course this is a, and the crazy thing is, this is as powerful a vision 700 years before Jesus as it is today. They knew what war was. They were probably a lot more acquainted with it than we are. Nation will not take sword up against nation, nor will they train for any more. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The prophet makes this appeal. Come, Jacob, let us do this. Let us walk in the light of Yahweh. These are his promises. This is where the world is going. Come, let us do this. Do they? The answer is no. So what must God do? In the person of Jesus, do it for them, for us. God would be the one faithful Jew who would walk in the light of the Lord every day and in every way. That's what I mean when I say Jesus is the solution to the problem that is spilled all over the scroll of Isaiah. And when you see these promises we just read through, let's do this exercise for a minute. Take this promise we just read through. And you're a Jew living in Jesus' day. You're one of Jesus' contemporary. You are about, you know, you're in your 20s when Pontius Pilate 
comes in as the new governor from Rome and you know what it's like and you know that the Romans have crucified thousands of Galilean Jews. You know that the Roman guards stand guard over God's temple. And you wouldn't it be natural to wonder, well, whatever came of these promises? Are they just empty? Would you begin to think that God, that God, <laughs> what are they, what, how does it go? God wrote checks God couldn't cash. That God made promises God couldn't keep. One of my favorite little volumes on Romans um, is, is cast as seeing Romans as a defense of God. A defense of God. And helping us see that Jesus is the embodiment of God's promise keeping. So you take that contemporary of Jesus who's dismayed by the Roman soldiers and stuff. It's like there's this box that you would hand him or her and say, just open it. You can see the righteousness of God right here on display, right here, right here. And he opens it, and what's there? Who's there? Jesus is. Jesus is God's promise-keeping in the flesh. So, as I said last week, in Micah, there is an exact parallel to this. Micah 4 and Isaiah 2 have parallel passages. Well, how does that happen? They are contemporaries. They are working at the same time, Isaiah and Micah, these two men. So probably this, this beautiful poetry of what God is bringing is something that they both used. Probably not original to either one. Probably they both used it. That's what most scholars guess. We don't know. It just, here it is in the scroll of, of, of Isaiah, as it is also in the scroll of Micah, this famous passage about swords into plowshares. Just, you know, when you get, when you get down and depressed about the state of the world, remember that this, these few verses here are painting a portrait for you of where God is taking all of this. God has made a promise that God can keep because the truth is God has already kept that promise in Jesus. The kingdom of God arrived in Jesus. We're waiting for it to be fully consummated, fully manifest, whatever word you want to use. But yes, it is already a done deal. So, and one day, everyone will see it. So, but now Isaiah turns his head, turns his turns his <laughs> turns his head in a different direction. So the closing verse of the previous section is this appeal: "Come, descendants of Jacob, my fellow descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord." And then he turns to the day of the Lord, and it is a day going to be a day of judgment. Judgment is going to fall on the northern kingdom. It's going to be swept away by the Assyrians. About 140 years later, judgment is going to fall on the southern kingdom and Jerusalem. And it's going to go into exile. 
to Babylon. Understanding God's judgment poses us lots of problems because we, we tend to want to, I think, let me just restart, let me start over. I think many of us grew up, some of us grew up, I grew up, even in the Episcopal Church, but I had a lot of, I, there's a pretty diverse religious territory there in North Louisiana, um, with a strong sense that, you know, God is, waits around to smite people. You know, you do as God said, or you're going to end up being smited, being smashed down. That's God's, God's judgment coming down on you. But in actuality, in the Old Testament scrolls, you find a much more complex presentation of, of, of how this is. Even in the famous passages, like in Exodus 34, where it says, oh, God's going to punish the salvation generation. It isn't what it really says. Because the word there isn't punished. The word there is visited upon. Right? So the sins of the Father are going to be visited upon the Son. And the sins of the Son are going to be visited upon the grandson. It's... Which, which, is, which is, I think, not quite like people think about it. They tend to think about it as God waiting to smite people. Um, there's a famous, there's several places we could go, but one of the most well-known is from the prophet Ezekiel, because it's just so straightforward. So let me see if I could find the right slide here. Okay, so here it is. This is Ezekiel... Um, Maybe it's 22nd chapter, 31st verse, as it says at the bottom. So God says, so I will pour out my wrath. And you're just waiting for everyone to get smited, right? I will pour out my wrath on them. I will consume them with my fiery anger. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, this is Sodom and Gomorrah, baby. It is coming down from the heavens. <gasps> Bringing down on their own heads all that they have done. Well, that's a different horse of a different color. Bringing down on their own heads all that they have done. That sin has consequences, and those consequences are often expressed as judgment. The people have abandoned God They have run away from God. They have built, well, we just, oh, you know, one king had, you know, contracted out the building of a pagan altar, or at least the shape of a pagan altar, um, not God's altar. And the consequence is of abandoning God's way and living in the world's way and taking the world's values is that they end up getting run over as people do in the world. So this idea that that judgment is really this, um, Terence Fredheim calls it um, like a piece of, the, the, there's a moral order that is like a piece of fabric of causation. And it's not tightly, you can't, it's not like that. You can't, 
it's 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 not like silk he says it's more like burlap it's kind of rough and yeah god is sometimes more active in this and sometimes passive in this but it really the, the ultimate point is that as is true in our own lives our mistakes bear their consequences i've made some mistakes in life they led to some unfortunate things over the many decades of my life all before lovely patty of course and i would never say god was smiting me i would say yeah you know what does paul say you know you reap what you sow that was really more at see that's along the same lines you reap what you sow galatians somewhere or other you reap what you sow so here we have in chapter two now this presentation of where the people <laughs> how they are living the choices they have made okay so patty any thoughts or questions to this point anything you would like to add as i take a sip of my coffee is it still hot um let me check <laughs> that little ember mug is still ticking along all righty no i'm good scott okay so Verse 6 of chapter 2. You, Yahweh, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean God has walked away and the game's over? Well, historically, we know that God didn't abandon the people. So what is that? Um, have there ever been times when, as a parent, you knew your kids were making a mess of things, but you decided just to leave them to their own devices? You just sort of walked out the room and said, you guys are going, you're making a hash of this whole thing, but, you know, really, I'll check in with you later. I don't know. I've done that. So it isn't abandoned in the sense of ever having forsaken them, but in the sense of, yeah, your choices are going to bear consequences. You're adults. Your choices bear have consequences. And if you're going to go down this path, yes, you can go down this path. God does not reach down and yank everybody back from every bad choice that they make. As a people, as a nation. God treats us like adults, not like children. God treats us like adults, not even like teenagers. God treats us like adults. So he says, you, Yahweh, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob, Oh, they are full of superstitions from the East. They practice divination like the Philistines and they embrace pagan customs. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. Who cares about the flipping horses and silver and gold? Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. In Isaiah 41, maybe, we're going to come to this great little story all about a craftsman who's has some wood and fashions uh, an idol and worships it and then takes the other half of the wood and puts it on, on the fire. And just the point being the silliness of it all. What do you mean? 
you make your own idol and then you make this thing out of clay or wood and then you worship it. Really? Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low. Everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Hmm. You know, you might say, well, that's harsh. Well, I think Isaiah is disgusted with them. You know, one of the things about, in the sense of tough love, Sharon Joy said, yeah, well, it's just letting people, treating people like adults. These people are, the Israelites made a covenant with God. They knew what they were doing. They reiterated it three times. And the view of Scripture is that these people are blessings, are the good consequences of living up to their end of their covenant, of living in God's ways, and curses are the consequences of sin. So, yeah. So people will be brought low and everyone will be humbled. And Isaiah says, don't forgive them. You know, um, these prophets, scripture, all of us, you know, we should strive to be honest with God. And I think Isaiah is just quite disgusted with his fellow Israelites. Disgusted with them. And so he looks at God and he says, no, don't forgive them. Will God take them back? Well, of course God take, will take them back. God is relentless in his pursuit of people, even to the point of allowing his own son to be crucified on a cross for their benefit, right? To accomplish that. So then Isaiah turns and he's got these big words of warning. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground, from the fearful presence of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. And when I was reading this, I was thinking how much like Revela the book of Revelation this is. It just sounds so much like it. In the book of Revelation, there are people hiding in rocks and things from God. But they won't repent. They won't repent. They won't repent. They're too proud to repent. They're too, they lacked all humility. But they know, they know it's going to be bad and they hide. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day. Nobody else, not all the kings and queens of the earth are going to be, no, Yahweh will be exalted in the day of the Lord. That phrase I use, the phrase Arthur so often uses about the world being turned upside down, where the kings and queens don't find themselves on top of the heap anymore, or the tech barons or the crypto magnets or whatever you want to think about it. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Twelve, the Lord Almighty. Yahweh Sabaoth has it. I love that, the sound of that. The, Yahweh Sabaoth has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted 
and they will be humbled. Pride is the root of all sin. Pride, pride is what makes us think that we can be gods. Sounds like the Beatitudes a little bit. Sounds like the Beatitudes. Sounds like Genesis 3. Sounds like the entire Bible pretty much from beginning to end. It's, it's, it's our great sin. It's like, well, last week I read that poem, right? I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. Right? Invictus is proud from beginning to end. No. Verse 12, Yahweh Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, these are giant trees. Lebanon is a country, obviously, to the north of Israel. The cedars of Lebanon have a big reputation for being tall and lofty, and so they're a metaphor for the tall and lofty and proud and arrogant. All the oaks of Bashan, Bashan is a very fruitful, lovely area on the eastern side of the Jordan River um, with tall trees and fat cows. For, verse 14, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. See? When we make idols, who's in control? We're in control. We fashion them from our own hands. It doesn't have to be little clay figurines like you see in a museum. Um, John Calvin said we're idol factories. We have lots of idols. We have we do it with people. We do it with things. We do it with stuff. A wise man once said, you know, you become what you worship. And too often what we worship is not God, but these idols, whether it's wealth or sex or whatever it might be. Sport. Family. Yeah, it's possible. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. Yahweh alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. The world will come to see that God is God and we are not and that he isn't just like a little better, bigger version of ourselves. What is it like? I don't know. I saw somebody the other day make a comparison. It's like he said he said, okay, like we're like paper clips. And God is like what then? The most magnificent supercomputer ever imagined on the face of the earth. Something like that. I don't know. To to try to talk about the that there there's no there's no real um point of reference in this. God isn't just a bigger version of us. That's what makes the incarnation so incredible. It isn't that God just took a few steps downward and became us. No. No, there's that isn't it. God is God. God is the creator. 
And too many people um, are unwilling to acknowledge it, instead rest in their own pride. Verse 20, in that day, the people, wait, verse 19. People will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground and the fearful presence of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Now, there was a comprehending how wrong they have been. So revelation-like, really. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship because they're worthless. In the day of the Lord, in the day of the resurrection, who cares how much gold you're going to have in your safety deposit box? That's the kind of stuff the world worries about now. It will have no meaning into the, in the world that we describe and read about in chapter 2 of Isaiah. They, verse 21, they will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of Yahweh and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. So you're getting the poetry now and the repetition of this um, about the presence of God. Verse 22, stop trusting in mere humans. who have but a breath in their nostrils. Who gave them that breath? Who put that breath there? Just a breath. That's a, we're here today, gone tomorrow. Why hold them in esteem? Why do we worship celebrities? Good question for American culture in 2022. Which is, which is, I think, overwhelmed with the celebrity culture. American Christianity is finding itself overwhelmed with celebrity preachers and, and stuff. That, that it isn't good. So, stop trusting in mere humans, dot, dot, dot. In whom should we trust? God. Just like, is it that what's on the coin, Patty? In God, in God we, we trust? trust. Ah, may that be, may that be so. This is just some thing that I was thinking about back a few verses when uh -huh. we were talking about um, right at the beginning, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And you were trying to make the um, analogy that there, there is no analogy to how far humans are away from God, that we're not just a few steps down or something like that. Do you think possibly some people kind of get that, even if they're not a... Um, a, a Christian, maybe they don't even say they're a Christian, but like we know in the Bible, it says that God made us in his image. Do you think maybe some people get that a little bit confused? I think maybe, people do get that Maybe confused. just think we are just, yes. just a little bit lower? Yes, and there's a passage in Hebrews that God made us a little lower the, than the angels. But the angels are created as well. Right. The angels are not semi-divine. We're not semi-divine. This is what separates... Um, uh, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam from the religions of the East. There is no, there is no spark or of the divine in us. We aren't, we aren't all becoming the divine. We don't swim in pools of divinity and so forth. We are creatures made by a God who loves us and who gave Himself for us, 
And it's always tempting to shrink the otherness of God to the point where it does seem like, really, God's just, classic way to put it, you see, I've seen a hundred times, God's really just a little better version of ourselves, right? If we got everything all right in our lives here in this world, it, that's pretty much what God is. No, God is, the gulf is vast. Yes. The gulf is vast. What God is teaching us is how to live as we were created to live, the same way I'm a pretty crummy handyman, okay? But but screwdrivers were are engineered, made to do a certain job. And that isn't the job that hammers do. Hammers are made to do a different job. Well, we were made to live in a certain way. And we will find that we at, are at our most joyous and content and fulfilled when we live the lives that we were created to live. And that those lives are lives centered upon the one who made us. Yes. Well, there's, you know, two religions, obviously, that are not Christian that I could think of, you know, just like that, that both, use the word preach, both preach that if you do the right things in the right order, you can eventually become like God yourself or even God yourself. I'm thinking of Mormons, I'm Mormons. thinking of Scientologists. I know there's many more. So there there must be this this thing in us that's just kind of there. I mean, it's it's bad, it's evil, it's sin, but that makes makes people want to be on the same level as God. Sure, because I mean, who wouldn't want to be on the same level as God? It's pretty attractive if you view yourself that way, right? Yes. It's pretty attractive to think that I have a spark of the divine in me that, you know, yeah, I mean, I get, I get the attractiveness of it, but it's simply wrong. And that wrongness is what can lead people down some very sad paths. Okay, chapter three. See now the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judea. I'm reminding you. Excuse me. <laughs> That's Alexa chiming Hi, Alexa. in. Alexa, <laughs> thanks for the reminder. See, Absolutely. Happy to help. <laughs> what have we done to ourselves? Okay. Okay. Just tell her to stop, honey. Alexa, stop. Patty's so polite with Alexa. Alexa, stop. She's so polite. She won't stop. I'm reminding you. Alexa, stop, stop the reminder. <laughs> okay, so I take an antacid every day at 4 o'clock. <laughs> now the whole world the knows whole it. The whole world knows. She just reminds me because I forget. We're yeah, eating dinner so it, and all of a sudden yeah, I go, yeah. oops. So, yeah. Sorry about that, folks. We're going to have to learn how to basically... Tell her no. She doesn't take no for an answer very easily. <laughs> okay, so now what God is going to do, now what Isaiah is going to bring is this word of judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. Okay? on It's going to become a little bit more kingdom-like, I guess. 
So see now the Lord, Yahweh Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food, all supplies of water. God's going to take the hero and the warrior, the judge, the prophet, the viner, the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, clever enchanter. I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. You know, you, you read this and you can't help but think of what happens during the Babylonian exile, which is still in a ways in the future. But the Babylonians take the best of the best. And they leave the poor and they leave the uneducated in Jerusalem. That's, a, that's the book of Daniel, right? Daniel and his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, they are the best of the best, these young men. And so, of course, the Babylonians take them away into captivity to put them to work for, for the Babylonians. So this is a picture of, of, of a kingdom stripped of the people who have the skills and talents to, to help. Okay, Verse 4, I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the nobody against the honored. A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, You have a cloak? Well, look at that. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy, I have no food, I have no clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against Yahweh, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They don't hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. There's that little hint again, right? That as soon as you start to fall into the trap of thinking, well, God's just waiting around to smite everybody. No, they have brought disaster upon themselves. Right? Their sins have been turned back upon their own heads. Because that's kind of how life works. Tell the righteous. A righteous means those who live by the law of Moses. It will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked, disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. As Paul writes, they will reap what they sowed. Youth suppress my people, women rule over them. My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. This is this common indictment of the leaders of Israel. This is the indictment Jesus makes. When Jesus goes and turns over the temple, um, the tables in the temple, what is he doing? He's putting a stop to the business of the temple and calling judgment down upon the priests who should know better, who should lead the people to, toward God, but instead, Jesus says, I've been leading them away from God. And here's the same thing. Youth suppress my people. Women rule over them. Because women didn't rule anybody in this patriarchal world of 2,700 years ago. 
My people, your guides lead you astray. They turn you from the path. Yahweh takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. Yahweh enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people and says to them, It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Ah, I just thought of the widow's might, right? She has almost nothing, but she will put her little tiny coin, this might, the smallest coin in the collection jar. And who swoops in and takes it all? The priests of Israel, using it to enrich themselves, to build their dynasty as the priests of Israel. No wonder Jesus calls judgment down upon the temple and the priests of Israel. That reference to the vineyard, hang on to chapter 5 for that one. You have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. Right? All the poor people have been paying the money you accepted to pay. And where do we find it? Well, it's all there in your house, in that big new lovely living room set and, you know, an 85-inch 4K TV and everything that you've got there. Verse 15, look at this one. Oh, my gosh. What do you mean? This is, this is God speaking to the leaders of Israel. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor? declares the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, Yahweh Almighty. Yahweh says the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments jingling on their ankles. Pretty 2022. Verse 17, therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. Zion being a, you know, another name for Jerusalem. Yahweh will make their scalps bald. All women like their hair. Yahweh will make their scalps bald. Verse 18, in that day, Yahweh will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments, tiaras and shawls. Instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of sash, a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. <laughs> Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth instead of beauty branding wow your men will fall by the sword your warriors in battle the gates of zion will lament and mourn destitute she will sit on the ground meaning the walls knocked down and the city crushed and you're going like oh my gosh scott this is no wonder we never did isaiah before why is he picking on the women <laughs> he's picking on everybody because it's a world gone wrong. It's a world gone wrong. And if you were going to paint pictures of a world gone wrong, you would make them dramatic. I think. That's what we do. We go to the cinema. A 
apocalyptic movies are always big and stark and huge and well that's what these words are these are word word portraits of a world that chased after itself and elevated itself and turned away from God and trusted in itself and would not trust in God and is reaping the consequences of it. And of course, what happens, just look to history, what happens? The Assyrian kingdom overruns the northern kingdom of Israel. The ten tribes that make up the northern kingdom of Israel are lost, scattered, 722 BC. They are lost and scattered. The southern kingdom hangs on for a while, but in 586, that winter, 586, the winter of 587, 586, Nebuchadnezzar sweeps in, the walls are broken down, and the cities are ruined. Read the opening verses of Lamentation sometime, and you can grasp the sense of horror and loss. And so, sure, these, these images are dramatic. They're meant to be dramatic. They're meant to be shocking. How about that? We use a word like shocking, upsetting. It's, it's, we used to use a phrase, I don't think people probably do this anymore. It's too violent. We, you know, we used to talk about hitting someone upside the head with a two by four as a way to talk about them being you know, snap back into reality. Well, that's what these word portraits are that the prophets bring. The sad part is they are largely ignored. Largely ignored. Maybe at some point we'll get a little further into this and I'll, I'll show you a few of my favorite other passages um, in the prophets. Uh, and just think of Jesus in the temple courtyards, turning over the tables and invoking the words of Jeremiah. When Jesus calls the temple in Jerusalem a den of thieves, those words are not original to him. He's quoting Jeremiah from 600 years before because Jeremiah had stood at the temple and said, you turned this into a den of thieves and it is our ruin. And it would be their ruin. And they would be shipped off to Babylonia. Some would be shipped off to Egypt. The city would be burnt out. The walls smashed. The temple lost. The Ark of the Covenant lost. And only the poorest of the poor left. Nothing changing. Decade after decade. Until finally, God allows people to begin to return and to rebuild. So, yeah. It is, it is upsetting. I, I sort of get that. So let's just do a couple more verses because the chapter divisions are not great okay. in this book. So now we're going to end it. Look at, turn over to 4, chapter 1. This goes with what we've been doing. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and say, we'll eat our own food, for goodness sakes. We'll provide our own clothing, for goodness sakes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. What is that about? Well, that's about there's so few men left, because they've all been killed, like in battle, that the women are going to come to the men that are left and say, I just need your name so I can 
I can be a proper person, but you don't even have to feed me. You don't have to buy my clothing. I won't be a burden to you, but please marry me so I can take your name. You know, that's their culture. It's not our culture. But yeah, and so when we come together next week, we're going to pick up there and gratefully in chapter 4, verse 2, we're going to begin to read about a branch of the Lord. We're come, going to come to this messianic branch of the Lord. So, but yeah. What do you think, Patty? I think it smells like your coffee's burning. That probably is. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I think. I'll watch that later. Okay. So, you know, you were getting kind of worked up there. I was getting worked up and there. And Susan Faulkner said that her two little dogs, they were like so upset by your animation, they were coming over and bumping her hand with their noses. <laughs> <laughs> At our house, of course, Rudy is sound asleep Passed out on asleep. the floor. Undisturbed. <laughs> undisturbed. I've got a little little room heater right on him, and he is just happy as a little clamp can be. So, um, I know the last few weeks we have been praying for Sarah, who is Carl and Diana Reeves' daughter, and they put a little update today that you know she is, she's home and she's healing from her um, breast cancer surgery. So please, so it was a big surgery. Let's keep her in prayer, and uh, we know this is um, it's kind of a long journey, but we know that God's with her and we're so grateful that she made it through the surgery and she's home and she's already healing. And, um, lately we've just seemed to have so many prayers answered, which I'm so grateful for. I mean, so many people we've been praying for, um, have just Kathy Champney showed up at class yesterday after she had this horrific fall, a terrible break. And you know, there she was back. There you go. God yeah. is good. He is good. So, um, let's just, close in prayer. Uh, let's see if I don't know if somebody else just put something there, but no, it was all fine. Um, good good group with us today, and if any of you, um, you know, want to join us tomorrow at in the John, uh, the Gospel of John, it's always good. You can pick up anywhere we are, and we're getting really, really close to the crucifixion. Well, it's the eve of the crucifixion yeah. right now. I mean, Jesus is, this is, we're in Jesus having this long talk right. with his disciples before yes. Yes. he's arrested. Right, right. So, Judas and, has already betrayed him yeah. last week, and so we're getting really close to that part. It's kind of good because before we know it, we're going to be at um, Ash Wednesday in, in Lent and getting ready for Easter. So, And next week, as I said, in Isaiah, we're coming to one of the Messianic prophecies where you begin to get this hint of what God might do someday about the problems that we had to concentrate on today. About his fix. Yeah, his solution. You got it. Okay. Let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this group. We thank you, God, for this time that we get to study your word. We thank you, God, for Scott's teaching today. We thank you, God, for this beautiful, beautiful February day outside today. We thank you for Valentine's Day, Lord. You know, we all have many people in our life that we love, our families. Uh, our friends, and, and we're so grateful, Lord, for that, for that gift of love that you gave us. And we do know that you said there is no, there's nothing greater. There's nothing greater than love. So we are so grateful, Lord, that that's, that's the God that you are, um, a God that would give up his own son, Lord, for us. 
It's sometimes it's just overwhelming for us to even, even contemplate that, Lord. We pray that you'd keep everyone, Lord, in our group, our friends, Lord, our family. We all have people we're praying for. We pray, God, that you'd keep us healthy and safe. And we pray, God, for your gift of uh, just helping us, God, your discernment, helping us make good choices and good decisions every day. Be with us this week, Lord. Watch over us, please. And I pray, God, that we'll never step too far away from you. All these prayers we lift up to you, God, and we pray them in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Adios. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Day.